You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open the word of our God together. This morning we turn to the letter of Paul to the church at Philippi, Philippians 3, 1 to 14. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I preached to you this morning from the word of our God, as you have it in 1 Corinthians 15, the verses 35 to 58. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat, or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun is one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. 
It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, where the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, hardly a week or a month goes by without the news that Someone you know, or someone who others know, has died. It may be elderly parents or friends living elsewhere. It may be acquaintances nearby. It may even be loved ones close by. It may be something that is expected after a long and serious illness, But it may also be something that comes as a complete surprise, as a terrible shock. Death is all around us, and it visits us often. And indeed, you can say that it is one of life's greatest and biggest realities. But yet often, too, it is one of life's most avoided realities. We do not willingly or eagerly speak about it with others. If we can, we try to avoid it. Why, even in our personal, private lives, we do not like to face up to it or think about it too much. 
After all, how much do you think about dying when you're living? We would rather push it far, far away from us. Yes, and in all of that, I dare to say the Christians are not so much different from the people in the world. We too spend rather little time reflecting on death and dying. We too avoid speaking about it. We find the whole matter rather distasteful, rather awkward. And you know, I think in a way that's perfectly understandable. Death, after all, is an enemy. Death's a rude interruption of life. And yet, it doesn't hurt from time to time if we also examine our attitude and our approach to it. Maybe our attitudes sometimes need changing, sometimes they need revamping. And always, I think, they need revisiting with the Holy Scriptures. And that's also the perspective from which we want to look at it this morning together. You know, beloved, as you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this letter of Paul to the church at Corinth, it it may give us the best and the fullest perspective anywhere on this particular subject. For you know that there the Apostle Paul was dealing with death, the death of Christ, as well as with the death of those who belong to Christ. But he deals with something else as well. He deals with something utterly astonishing and miraculous. Paul deals with the resurrection from the dead. Life after death is his theme. More specifically, if you look in the verses 1 to 11 of this chapter, he deals with the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He shows that it is according to the scriptures. He lists his numerous post-resurrection appearances. Why, he even recalls how Christ has appeared to him as the risen Lord and so radically changed his life. And thereafter, Paul moves on in the verses 12 and following from the resurrection of Christ to the resurrection of his followers. And in that context, he calls Christ the first fruits. The image is that of that of a glorious harvest. A harvest in which Christ appears first. And thereafter, all of his saints appear with him as well. Resurrection from the dead is the reality, the truth, the promise, and the future of all those who belong to Christ. And that is great news. That is earth-shaking news. Life-transforming news. But, of course, there's also something else. It's the kind of news that raises a lot of eyebrows and generates a host of questions. It sprinkles the air with whys and how comes and whens and whats. And in our text, we see that the Apostle Paul addresses some of those questions. 
And so I'd like to preach to you this morning on the following theme. Paul conveys startling news about our future body to believers then and now. And we see that he anticipates, first of all, a question. Secondly, he presents a contrast. Thirdly, he relates a mystery. And finally, he issues a charge. Well, beloved, the the main question that the resurrection of the believers raises invariably has to do with the resurrection of the body. In verse 35, the Apostle Paul anticipates this when he says, But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? We don't know for sure, but perhaps the initial news of the resurrection of the dead had had created quite a lot of debate and discussion in the church at Corinth. Or, or perhaps the Apostle Paul anticipates that this is exactly what's soon going to happen after they read what he's written in this 15th chapter. But whatever the case may be, it's not surprising that this particular question arises. In grappling with the miracle of the resurrection, this is always one of the most basic issues. Together with the Corinthians, we too have our questions. How can this be? How can God raise the dead when our bodies have turned to dust? Or how can he give us new bodies when perhaps there are no remains of us to be found anymore? And in addition, what are these bodies going to be like? I'd like to know what I look like or what I will look like in the life hereafter. To what can we compare them? How does the Apostle Paul answer those kind of questions? Well, it's interesting. In a way, he kind of handles them like a perturbed teacher. A teacher who chides, rebukes his students. Why does he rebuke them? Well, because he he thinks in all of their questions they're forgetting about God. They're forgetting about the God who is the creator of the human body. He made man in the beginning. So what's to prevent him from remaking man in the future? Can God not give to man a body as he determines? He did it once. Surely he can do it again. But still, Paul doesn't stop there. Now, he brings in an illustration. It's the illustration of a seed. He turns to the world of agriculture and gardening, and he says, consider, think about a seed. Now, I don't know much about gardening and the like. My wife only sends me out into the garden with pruning shears after I have received very specific instructions because flowers and weeds, they all look the same to me and I chop them all down. But I have learned something. I have at least learned that seeds are full of surprises. You know, when you look at them, they're small, they're brown, they're kind of ugly, dead-looking things. You want to throw them away. You easily mistake them for dirt. 
They come across as so unpretentious. But you know, you plant them, and you water them, and you wait, and lo and behold, in due time, sometimes the most beautiful flowers imaginable come popping out of the ground. What you planted into the ground, and what you see coming out of the ground, represents an unimaginable difference. It couldn't be more surprising or more at odds. And you know, that's the kind of illustration that the Apostle Paul now applies to the resurrection body as well. What gets planted into the ground and what God will one day make come out of the ground is nothing less than one of life's greatest surprises and astonishments. On the one hand, there will be continuity. As the seed and the plant are connected, and so it is with the body that goes into the ground and the body that comes out of the ground, that they perhaps share the same genetic makeup for all I know, but they're intimately connected. But yet there's all manner of change as well. Paul says the body that is sown is perishable, but the body that is raised is imperishable. He says the body that is buried in so much dishonor is one day going to be raised in glory. The body that goes into the ground filled with weakness will come out of the ground raised in power. And the body that is laid to rest a natural body, or that is a body suited to the earth, But the body that rises is a spiritual body. In other words, a body fit for the new heaven and the new earth. And Paul says, so it will be with the resurrection from the dead. As God gives to each seed its own body and its own splendor, so it will be with us. And is that not a most astonishing thing? I'm sure it knocked more than one Corinthian believer out of his sandals. You know, they've been taught as good Greeks that the body, the body doesn't matter. As a matter of fact, the body doesn't count at all. It's, It's inferior. It holds you back. It slows you down. It trips you up. It hems you in. But you know what matters in your life is your soul. What lives inside you, that's what counts. But then along comes the Apostle Paul with a whole new outlook. And it's an outlook that treats man as a unit, as a whole. None of this playing the body off against the soul. None of this dichotomy nonsense. None of this disembodied existence stuff. No man is one. True death divides. But one day God will reunite again. Oh, and how? He will reunite again. How he will transform us. 
He will remake us and he will improve us in ways that we cannot even imagine. The kind of life that we shall have on the new heaven and the new earth defies expectation, imagination, and I dare say even speculation. It will be richer and fuller and more complete than ever before. Now, beloved, is that not something to soften our sorrows? Is this not something that alters our view of death and dying? Is this not also a most convincing perspective when dealing with loved ones who have died in our Lord? But then, beloved, if Paul first anticipates and answers a question in our text, he also, in the verses 44 to 49, presents us with a contrast. It's a contrast between the first Adam and the last Adam. And it's the same contrast that you can find elsewhere in his letter to the church at Rome. On the one side, he says, there is the first Adam, and he is a living being. He is the natural man. He is from the dust of the earth. He is the earthly man. But on the other side, there is the last Adam, and he is a life-giving spirit. He's the spiritual man. He's the man from heaven. So Paul says there is this contrast between Adam and Christ. But of course it doesn't end there. Paul draws the lines through to us and to all of mankind. He does that in verse 49 when he writes, And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Now what does that mean? Well, really, it means that as believers, we're connected to both Adams. On the one hand, we bear the likeness of the earthly man. The first Adam is the father of the human race. He's our ancestor, and he's the start of our family tree. It's from him that we get our humanity. Unfortunately, however, that's not the only thing we get from him. We also received his sinful and fallen nature. And we also received our fallen world and our death sentence from him. In short, you can say the first Adam is a descendant we need to acknowledge, but he's not the kind of descendant that you can actually be proud of. For you know, if one finger needs to be pointed at any one person for making a mess in this world and in our lives, even today, it is him. He gave us life and he gave us death. But yet, praise be to God, there is more than one Adam. There is another Adam and all who believe in him, Paul says, bear the likeness of the man from heaven. And what does that mean? Well, it means that this Adam was not created by God, but came down from God. In heaven he was God. Once on earth he became man as well. But then he became a very special man. 
Paul calls him a life-giving spirit. He died, was buried, but on the third day he rose again from the dead. He conquered the grave. He took hold of life again. He became a new man. And indeed, what we get after the resurrection is a transformed redeemer. Study the gospel accounts. The one moment he's there, the other moment he's gone. He gives food to others, but apparently he doesn't need any food himself. He's the same Jesus, but he's also a very different kind of Jesus. There's a newness about him. There's a splendor and a majesty and a glory unlike before. This is no longer the man of sorrows. This is the man from heaven. Yes, and what a man. A changed man, not just for his own sake, but also for our sake. Paul calls him a life-giving, life-generating, life-producing spirit. And that raises the question, to whom does he give life? Why, to all who believe in him. To all who call him Savior and Lord. To all who really love him and serve him. To all who are his, he gives life, eternal life. Yes, and one day he will give them the kind of glorified life that he now possesses. We didn't read that, but does the Apostle Paul not say at the end of Philippians 3 that the Lord Jesus will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body? In other words, one day we're going to be like the last Adam. One day we shall be like our Savior. One day we shall have a body like he has. And together we shall live in a new creation. Truly there is more than one reason why we should live close to him. It's not just to have our sins forgiven. It's not just to be clothed with his righteousness. It's not just to have through him a renewed fellowship with God the Father. And neither is it simply to have our bodies become temples of the Holy Spirit. No, it's about sharing in his likeness, in his glory, in his future. How rich we are. When we live by faith in the Son of God. But also something else, for then our lives will also be filled with mystery. Paul goes on to say, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye of the last trumpet. We shall all be changed, Paul says. And why does he say that? Well, because we need to be changed. 
We cannot inherit the kingdom of God in all of its power, glory, and perfection as we are. Flesh and blood are not good enough. In this case, we cannot come just as I am without a plea. Now, in this case, the way we are doesn't cut it. Having the kind of flesh and blood, the kind of humanity that we have right now at this moment will not do. We need to be changed. We need to be changed into Christ. But how will that change happen? Well, we know from the scriptures it will happen suddenly, unexpectedly, and loudly. As trumpets announce the feasts in the Old Testament, so trumpets will also announce the coming of that great and glorious day. But as to how exactly it will happen, we do not know. It's all shrouded in mystery. Somehow and in some way, the perishable will become the imperishable. The mortal will clothe itself with immortality. And this will happen, Paul says, to all. All the dead and all the still living, all the believers from the past and in the present will be changed. Wonderfully, mightily, miraculously and mysteriously changed. And how do we know that? Well, because the scriptures predicted it long ago. Go back to Isaiah 25. We didn't have opportunity to read that, but it's a beautiful chapter. And look at verse 8 and, and, and listen to what the prophet says there about God. God will swallow up death forever. And that's what God's going to do on that great day. As a man swallows up water, so God will swallow up death. And that'll be the end of it. There will be no more death. No more gloating by death either, for its victory is gone. And the hurt and the pain and the sorrow caused by death will be gone as well. Its sting will be removed. What gave power to death? It was sin. And who condemned those living in sin? It was the law. But on that great day, both will be gone. No more sin and and no more law as the instrument of condemnation. They will be banished forever. But one thing will remain, and that is the great victory brought about by our Lord Jesus Christ. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul describes it in this way, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. And in all these things, we are more than conquerors to him who loved us. Christ Jesus will be triumphant. And we shall share in his triumphs. 
And that, beloved, has, has consequences. Paul turns those consequences into a charge, a threefold charge. And you see that in the last verse of our text. First, he says, stand firm. They apparently needed that charge in Corinth because they were always blowing in the wind. But I think we need it too. We need to be reminded that when it comes to these foundational truths of the faith, and surely the resurrection of the body is one of them, that when it comes to these truths, we must be immovable, steadfast, rock solid. Don't let anyone tell you anything else, and don't believe it. Stand firm. No matter the doubts, no matter the questions, no matter the hesitations, Paul says you stand firm. Let nothing move you. But stay your ground. And second, Paul says always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. You know, one thing I noticed in my recent trip to the Netherlands was that many who consider themselves to be in Christ no longer have or make any time for the work of Christ. Men chosen to be elders and deacons have no time for the Lord's work because they're too busy with their own work. Members called upon to exercise their offices as prophets, priests, and kings have no time either. Everything else in life is more important. But yet the Apostle Paul reminds us that this great salvation to which we have become heirs should not only serve as an incentive for faithful service, it should be an incentive for lifelong service. In the light of the resurrection, we're to know ourselves to be new people with a new agenda, with a new purpose, a new outlook, heading into a new future. And we are to serve in that light. And third, the Apostle Paul says, you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It strikes me that a lot of what we busy ourselves with in this life often doesn't really matter. I meet older people, especially people who are reflecting on their life, and they, they admit that they, they, they really spend a lot of time in this life majoring in minors. That a lot of it belongs under the category of vanity of vanities. But Paul says that's not the same with this labor. Not labor in the Lord. It has value. It has purpose. It has meaning. You know, when you do your work and when you live your life in the light of the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, then life takes on a whole new color. And the things you do take on a whole new color. And we need to remember that. The life that we live today is a life 
It should have implications and consequences for eternity. And sometimes maybe you and I, we should stop and we should ask ourselves, does this what we're doing, what we're so busy with in this life, does it really, really matter in the light of the future? And so, beloved, what shall we say? What shall we say of deaths? It remains a sad and grim reality. But thanks be to God. We have a Savior who has conquered it and who has opened up for us a future beyond imagination and description. And that's what we should revel in and enjoy every day, no matter what our circumstances. Praise the Lord. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.